Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. The college football season is all done, unless you count the All-Star Games. And I can tell you right now, I don't count the All-Star Games. Not going to. Not even sure why players play them. There's plenty of film that didn't used to exist. The risk of getting hurt, it's crazy. To me, it all ended last night when LSU did what I thought they were going to do, what most people thought they were going to do. They beat Clemson. Maybe a little different how they did it. They got down 10. They hadn't been down 10. But boy, once they figured out how to win the line of scrimmage, it was over. They struggled to run the ball early in the game. Uh, They struggled to protect the quarterback long enough to throw the ball early in the game. And basically, it just got dominated. Uh, The blitzes that uh, Adam Amin talked about uh, on our show uh, late yesterday were uh, clearly having a problem in those first three possessions. Now, they figured that out, and it was on. They got a score, there was one more stop, and then they scored three in a row. It was a little Kansas City Chiefs-like, you know? They weren't down by as much. They were down by 10 instead of 24. But still, when they were down 10, did you think they were going to be up? I mean, it's 17-7, you're thinking, no problem, they'll be up 28-17 at the half. It turned around like that. That's what was... So similar. The three touchdowns, so aggressive on the third one. The quarterback draw that was good for 25 yards or whatever when they were out of timeouts. Uh, There was some good stuff in there, some great throws. Joe Burrow, it's funny, you know, statistically, he had his worst game. Now, if you watch the game, he was brilliant. So that just tells you, even on a bad night, allegedly, air quotes, bad night, he's still awesome. Still awesome. So impressive. Great throws. They got him time. And, you know, it wasn't just the passing game they got going. They got the running game going, too. And the thing is that as LSU's offense got more potent and went up and down the field and it became really critical for Clemson to match that and stay in the game, they couldn't do it. They, they couldn't do it at all. And that was, uh, that was the difference in the game. They... Uh, the, the Clemson offense didn't have any answers. They had those 17 points early, and they scored one time the rest of the game. Because not only did the LSU offense adjust, but the LSU defense adjusted. It was a thing of beauty if you were a Tiger fan. It ended up being really impressive. Uh, they win 42-25, a 17-point win. They're kneeling down inside the five-yard line when they clearly could have scored late in the game. And uh, just, just an impressive all-around performance by LSU. Uh, Burrow, six touchdowns in the title game. 15-0, undefeated, national champ, Heisman Trophy winner, 31-49 of for 463 yards and five TDs. That's your bad game? Really? That's off the charts. And uh, Hilaire, 16 carries for 110 yards. For a guy who didn't have much going early in the game, had some big carries. And I thought when they turned that game around, there were two runs in particular. They had a second and three. They gave him the ball. He got hit at the line of scrimmage. And he wasn't pointed straight up field. It was kind of at an angle, and he still managed to carry two guys for a first down. But that was impressive, and then he followed it up with a really hard-running seven-yard run. You just feel physically LSU thinking, we're not going to be manhandled, we're not going to be intimidated. And I think it was on the broadcast, Kirk Herbstreit actually said, that's the kind of run that can fire a team up. And I thought both those runs were excellent. And so LSU wins. They're the champs. 15-0. and They said the broadcast they played seven top ten teams. Now it'll be interesting to see when it's all said and done how many of those teams are top ten. But I think uh, they beat Georgia in the SEC title game. Maybe Georgia replaces Oklahoma, who they beat in the semis. Maybe they swap four and five. But I think they beat three of the top five teams to end the season. Uh, Clemson ought to finish at two. 
to my, in my book, Ohio State at three. I would move Georgia to four and Oklahoma to five and round it out right there. And, uh, and I'd probably put Oregon six. Uh, and if you want to switch Oregon and Oklahoma, you probably could. Um, but I don't know that it would have gone that well for Oregon if they had to show up against LSU. LSU's just awesome. They got it all, which is what Nick Saban said after they lost to him. He said, that's a hard offense because they got answers for everything. And I think we saw that again last night. You know, you get your quarterback throwing for 463 yards and your running back 110 yards on 16 carries. He's averaging six yards a pop. That's, uh, that is really hard to beat. So LSU's the champ, and it was uh, – it was, uh, it was a tough start for them, but, boy, when it's all said and done, uh, they've beaten three of the top fives or six teams in the country. Uh, Florida's going to be a top-ten team. They beat Alabama. I think Bama's going to finish up as a uh, top-ten team. Auburn may not, but they'll be close. So that is a very difficult schedule for LSU. Um, It'll be interesting. They beat Texas early in the year. It was out of polls, but went over the Utes. Texas could end up uh, being ranked as well. Just a heck of a performance by LSU. And now <clears throat> assume that uh, Burrow's going to be the number one pick, that he's going to go to Cincinnati, and hopefully they'll get enough players around him that he can be entertaining. It's still a team game. you got to have guys around you. But if you get guys around him, he ought to be really entertaining. Really fun to watch. All right. Uh, a few of my takes on the game. Uh, here's PK with his take on the national title game. All right, the college football season has come to an end. What'd you think of the game last night? Well, all right, my turn to talk about what I thought about the game. Clearly, Louisiana State University, otherwise known as LSU, is the best team in college football. How can anybody argue? They got it right. The system leaves open for debate, but under the system that they have, which is the teams that go undefeated get an opportunity, and the teams from power conferences with one loss get an opportunity to get in the playoff. That's the system. They got it right. They got the right teams in, and then I think we had the two best teams playing, and then certainly LSU is the best team as they are crowned the national champion for 2019. I don't have any problem with that in recognizing the Tigers, that would be the Tigers, of course, of LSU. Both teams were the Tigers. Clemson is the Tigers also. And Clemson, a very good team, clearly won so many games. Won the title last year, uh, undefeated until this point this year. Just a little bit better was LSU, I thought. I thought that the difference in the game is or was LSU's defense because I didn't think Trevor Lawrence was as good as we've seen him. Certainly he wasn't that. He's obviously the Clemson quarterback. He wasn't as good as we saw him against Ohio State when I thought he was a sensational. So they got down 16 to nothing. He had the big run. I thought he looked great. And against LSU, a lot of high throws, even some low throws late in the game, the high throws earlier in the game. I think it was just the pressure of LSU. I mean, you look at that defense, and then they are famous for having a great defense and sending so many guys to the NFL. I would need a list. I would literally need a program to remember all the guys that have gone to the NFL. It's not like BYU, where you can name Fred Warner and Kyle Van Noy and Daniel Sorensen and Iggy's uh, Ziggy Ansah. Am I missing anybody? Is anybody else out there? Uh, I guess the cornerback for the Chargers is another kid. But my point is... They don't put that many guys in the NFL, so you can name them one by one, almost literally. 
But with LSU, you just can't. There's so many of them. And you, you just think of, man, they're just loaded. And then this year, obviously, they had the offense, right, with the quarterback, who, man, what some great throws that they make and that he made in the game. And it's not like the the receivers were open by five yards by any stretch. I mean, he's just putting the ball in the money on those long passes, laying in there. They even had one touchdown dropped in the fourth quarter. Uh, but he's brilliant. But I think that the defense was something that maybe Trevor Lawrence hasn't faced this year. Ohio State's defense obviously is good. But overall, top to bottom, I think you're looking at the best defense. And so he was pressured a little bit, speaking of Trevor Lawrence. And he clearly didn't play his best game. Not even close to his best game. And I think that was the difference, right? So I can live with that. LSU deserves to win. Good for Ed Orgeron. You know, he seems to be everybody's favorite. He seems like he's a kind of an old school guy. Old coach with a raspy voice. Not retained by USC when they had an opportunity when he took over. Who was he? He was an interim coach for somebody. Was it Sarkeesian? Was it Kiffin? So I think actually it was both, really, when you think about it. Yeah, I think it was both. They didn't deem him worthy to be the head coach. And then he goes to LSU, and now we know what happened there. And now they're undefeated. Best team in college football. I think the big thing that I took from this season, though, as I go big picture beyond the actual game, is they've got to change the system. We, the fans, we should demand it. We should demand so that they change the system at least just bump it up just uh, to six teams, and then you have a bye there. You know, so uh, two teams, play, four teams play, and then the winners play one and two. Get the automatic bid if you win your conference because the way the system is set up, it just discourages having big games. And I want big games. I want big games in September. I mean, obviously you got the conference games, and you end up with those matchups, and some of those matchups are big. Particularly for the Pac-12, I think it would help them a lot. And that's what I'm concerned about the most is the Pac-12. Find ways to help the Pac-12 so then they can play these big games and then they don't lose them. The Pac-12 is sort of like Gonzaga in basketball, only Gonzaga because obviously they take so many teams in the tournament. They can play a bunch of big games in the non-conference. It just makes it more fun. It's not fun enough now. Particularly, what's the what's why bother? Why, why do the the SEC's got all this talent plus playing the eight conference games? I've said this before on the radio. Since the Pac-12 went to twelve teams, time for the 2011 season, no team has gone nine and zero. And in that time, in the SEC there's been like seven teams who've gone eight and zero. So it's easier. It's easier to go undefeated in the SEC than it is in the Pac-12. And so Oregon gets bumped out of the playoff because Arizona State got them in the next last game of the season or because they lost that first game to Oregon. uh, Excuse me, to Auburn, obviously. Encourage big games. Good for the sport. Just do it. Just make the move already. Even if you have to eliminate the conference title games, just do it. So those are my thoughts on the national championship game yesterday, last night, and college football season's over. Always, I'm always sad when it's over. All the time, every year, college football, truth be told, of all the things that I like to watch, it's college football. There's really nothing better than settling down on a Saturday and just watching college football. My brother-in-law and my sister down in Phoenix, they talk about watching it from 9 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning when the time changes, till 10, 11 at night. 
huge college football fan. So am I. And I have to work all, I have to work every Saturday, so I'm not in front of the television all day, but I try to get in front of it as much as I can. So there you go. The college football season is over. LSU is your champion. Now we put on Facebook, what should the Utes be ranked? We'll get to that, won't we, DJ? All right, back to you. All right, there's PK. Uh, just to follow up on a couple of these things, and we'll get to them late in the show. You know, where should the Utes be ranked? I think, uh, you know, they, they went in, uh, what, number 11 to the bowl game, and they got worked. I think guaranteed they fall to 15, and they may be closer to 20. I don't think they'll fall past that. Uh, some of the teams right behind them, you know, Alabama won their bowl game. They got to move up. Um, I think uh, Notre Dame won their bowl game. Not the greatest competition, but they ought to move up. You know, Notre Dame beat USC, and Utah didn't. Now, Iowa was several spots back, but Iowa dominated USC in the Holiday Bowl. I think Iowa passes the Utes. I think uh, Minnesota, for their win, should pass. Now, Auburn lost to Minnesota, but Auburn's only a couple spots below the Utes. I think Auburn beat Oregon in the opener, and the Utes didn't beat Oregon. So, you know, I don't know how much compares to how careful— I suspect not very, how careful the voters are. But it's easy to see five or six of these teams passing the youth. So I think 15's best-case scenario, but my guess is closer to 20. I don't know what they'll do um, with teams like Memphis and Cincinnati. I don't know if Texas will vault all the way back into the rankings and pass the youth. I mean, they smoked them head-to-head, so I can't rule it out. I don't think they will because I think people basically look at records and the youth will be 11-3. and three. So, I mean, that that's the thing that could keep Auburn behind them, which I don't. I think he's right. Auburn played a tougher schedule, but Auburn's going to have fewer wins and more losses. I think they're going to be nine and four. So uh, you know, we'll see how that shakes out. But I, I think the Utes dropped to at least fifteen and probably closer to twenty. They end up seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. That that'd be my guess on where they finish this year. Uh, maybe they'll do a little better. We'll have to see. Um, <laughs> will the West Coast get any respect? <laughs> we can we can beat that drum again. I got to say, the top hundred and fifty players, none of the eleven of them played west of Oklahoma and Texas. Thanks for that. I'm biased because he's from San Diego, but everybody who voted is biased because they live in the Central and Eastern time zones, for goodness sakes. I'm just going to go ahead and assume that. I don't actually know it. Um, But look at me. It's my bias. Marcus Allen. I mean, he's competing at running back with Ronnie Lott, and he's so good. They move Ronnie Lott to defense. He blocks for a Heisman Trophy winner. And then he runs for a Heisman Trophy himself. Man. That, that's a career right there. That is a career for Marcus Allen. He's like 40th on the list. Whatever. All right, DJ and PK, we got more football coming up, and we got some basketball with Steve Cleveland on the way later in the hour. Stay with us, DJ and PK. This is 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, the Zone, and the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Time to talk college football with Adam Amin, ESPN play-by-play broadcaster, Adam, good morning. Oh, it's a good, it is a good morning, my friends. I want to talk to you uh, big picture about a few of the issues in college football. And one, uh, you know, it's the national title games got 
when the national title game has two undefeated teams, there isn't much to complain about. But I do think there's a big chunk of the country that says, you know, it's not 130 teams chasing playoff berths. It's the Power Five chasing mm-hmm. playoff berths. But the fact is, inside the Power Fives, it might only be six, eight, or ten teams chasing playoff berths. You know, the whole Big 12 isn't chasing it, but Oklahoma is. Maybe Texas and Baylor are. Is that wearing everybody out? What do you hear when you travel the country calling games? You know, I think it, it's, it's starting to wear people out because this structure, you know, uh, which has been in place now for, what, this is the sixth year of the format. We didn't really worry about that before, right? Because you weren't necessarily pursuing something that was a little bit more uniform before. You know, before it was, you're almost just kind of competing against your own schedule, uh, in a sense, they're like, all right, let's see. If we go 12-0, and 0, we've got a shot to at least be in consideration to be the number one team of the country. Then the BCS era comes around and goes, all right, well, kind of the same deal. The computers are going to decide it a little bit now. But if we're in, the, if we're in contention, if we're 12-0, and 0, we're 11-0 and 0 going into that last week or you know, going into the conference championship game in the Mountain West or in the Sun Belt, if we've had a perfect year, we certainly have a shot to be in a, in a conversation, maybe not the conversation, but in a conversation. I'm thinking about Boise State. Uh, maybe what was it, 2008, 2009, when they, or uh, 2010, when they had that run uh, where they were unbeaten. They had that, you know, the fateful Kyle Bratzman game against Nevada. I'm thinking about that example. Now that you've placed a structure like this that is attempting to be uniform, but in my opinion, has a fatal flaw in that there's no equity in it, so it's impossible to be a uniform system when not everybody seemingly gets a fair chance to be in the conversation, then I think, yeah, but I think people are going to get worn down by it. I think people are going to get a little annoyed by it or frustrated with it or whatever. Uh, I, I think that's a fair assessment. At least that's been my estimation. Maybe it's just confirmation bias because I am talking about it in that sense with people, but I, I do seem to hear that, especially covering group of five games. You know, you go to Temple and Cincinnati, you go to these American conference teams that have had great years, they're undefeated. And they never really get brought into the conversation about the national championship. The UCF run uh, for a couple of seasons where they were unbeaten and nobody was really talking about them in that conversation. And and the question sometimes looms until we see a certain uh, level of expansion, will we ever even be able to have those conversations? Yeah, the scheduling thing is a real interesting phenomenon because you look at Oregon, they chose to play uh, a big school and they lose in the beginning and then they run the table except for one game in the conference in the Pac-12. And since the Pac-12 has gone from 10 to 12, there literally has been no team to go 9-0. and There's been a few who have gone 8-1. and And so Oregon gets upset by the Sun Devils in the next to the last weeks uh, of the season and they're out. So it begs the question, why play a powerful SEC program early, why not just play Chico State and then go through, and if you only had one loss, most likely you would have gotten the bid. I don't know, but most likely maybe you would have gotten the bid against ahead of Oklahoma and been in the 14 playoff. So it, you, you start to wonder, for some of these schools, what's the incentive to beef up your non-conference schedule? And I think consumers like myself who love college football, without these big games in September, it kind of is a little bit empty. I would agree. I mean, listen, look at Oregon's schedule next year. They're playing North Dakota State, 
which is not a joke of a game. That is a scary game to put on your schedule. They're playing Ohio State. I think they're playing Hawaii, which is not an easy game to play. You know, I, I know I'm not sure what Hawaii is going to look like without their quarterback next year, but you know, that's that's a different conversation. There, is, I think there. You can certainly make a case for both. You can say, well, why do we even bother? Why do we even bother scheduling the way we do? Baylor has been criticized in in years past with but by not having a significant non-conference portion of their schedule. Maybe that's what kept them out in the initial playoff in 2014. Maybe you could, maybe you can make an argument and that's why Ohio state got in. Um, you know, Ohio state lost the game. I, if I'm not mistaken to Virginia tech that year early and then rattled off uh, a great run. I think they, they won out the rest of their schedule and obviously went to the national championship game and, and beat Oregon. But I, I think you can make a case for both sides. And when you can do that, again, I, I think the question about uniformity still stands. I think when you're not when, – when you want to be a uniform product with a uniform structure and the equity of that isn't necessarily applicable to teams across the board in multiple conferences that have completely different non-conference schedules that oftentimes, as you, you accurately mentioned, man, like some conferences play nine games, some play eight. Like – yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if you can force uniformity in a structure that doesn't necessarily have the, the, I think, the architecture for it right now. And again, what's the best solution? I don't know. I, I, I've been a proponent of if you're going to make Power Five conferences already be elevated, fine. But let's just make let's make conference championships valuable again. Heck, if you if you ask me about it, I'd do away with conference championship games. And I would say let's just play out the regular season, play out the schedule that you have. The best team at the end of it wins the not wins the conference title and gets an automatic bid to a playoff and replace the first conference championship game weekend with the first round of the playoffs and making an eight team playoff. Or heck, if you're going that far, you might as well say, Hey, why don't why can't we figure out a structure to make it sixteen? And I understand at this level people don't want to necessarily put these athletes in that in that spot, but I've been hearing a lot of excuses and I think at some point, if there's money on the line to be made, somebody's going to say yes to this structure. The whatever you know, whatever necessitates it, whether it's the Rose Bowl game that that is very hell bent on sticking with January first, which which fine, that's maybe the last bastion of, of tradition we may have in what is a completely overhauled system of this sport. So, uh, well, I think if there's money to be made, somebody's going to figure out a way to make this work in whatever structure they want to make it work in, and I think that's the bottom line. And I know that's the cynic in me. Uh, kind of pointing this out, but I, I do think that when there, there's this type of money exchanging hands and this type of money that's available to uh, schools, conferences, unfortunately not the players, but uh, and, and, and bowl games, I think somebody's going to figure out a, made, a way to make it work. You know, the thing about the 14 playoff is uh, that was expanded from two to four because, you know, there might be three undefeated teams. There was with Auburn in 2004. There was again this year. So two's dicey. They're not always getting the right teams. They might leave the champion out. When they went to four, the thought, well, the champion is in. But, you know, you move the bag back at first to eliminate the close plays. Now there's an argument who four should be. Do you think this year there were just three teams that separated from everybody else by a mile and a half? Oklahoma got blown away by 35, but Georgia lost the SEC title game by 27. Maybe the only way to get a fourth team in there that could have competed with LSU in the semifinal would have been if Tangavaloa was healthy and they gave Alabama a second crack, and that would have gone over really well with the rest of the country. Should the playoff just stay at four just because the top teams are too good? 
You know, here's here's one thing that that you have to take into consideration, and I think you're right. By the way, I think this year maybe it was just one of those years. Everybody who's a proponent for the four team playoff is going to say, "Well, hey, look, it's perfect. Though. Who, who there there isn't really a clear cut number four. I agree. I agree this year, and it's an easy argument and, a, and maybe the right argument to make for a four team playoff. There were only three great teams in college football this season, but if you said Starting in 2021, we're going to go to an eight-team playoff. It's going to be the structure that, that we just kind of discussed. You know, conference champions make it, and then there's, let's say, two wild cards. And let's, let's allot a spot for the group of five, which, by the way, I don't think will ever happen uh, or, or won't happen until somebody says, yes, let's give those teams a piece of the pie. Again, there's money to be made out there, and nobody wants to give it up for anybody else. They want to keep it for themselves. It's fine. But let's say you were to allot a group of five slot, two wild cards for – you know, a Notre Dame or, you know, let's say a BYU if they have a great season or uh, another SEC team if they had a particularly good run. And then you have your five conference champions that are that are in the playoff. Let's say it's an eight-team playoff. People are going to complain like, well, I don't want to watch Memphis against LSU. I don't want to watch that game in Baton Rouge. Let's say, the, you know, the top four seeds host the, host the first-round game. I don't want to watch that game. That's not going to be a good game. Fine. So be it because the level of competition is significantly different. But what's going to happen in five years when you know as a group of five team, let's say you're UCF and Scott or, uh, or uh, Josh Heupel, let's say that you're Memphis and Mike Norvell didn't leave for Florida State. Why did he leave for Florida State? Because he's going to a Power Five conference. Let's say there's a slot aligned for a group of five team to make the college football playoffs. Don't you think that's going to change the structure of college football as we stand right now? Don't you think there are going to be a lot more high-quality players that would prefer to go to a place like a UCF or a Memphis or a Cincinnati because there's a group of five slot aligned for them rather than go to, let's say, a mid-level SEC team that has an outside shot, let's say, and and I feel bad calling Texas A&M a mid-level team, but let's just for the sake of the argument call them that. Wouldn't you rather go to UCF and play for a coach that is going to stay at UCF because he doesn't want to go to a mid-level ACC job and he'd rather be at UCF because there's a chance to play in the college football playoff? Don't you think that's another sales pitch and a selling point to keep the best kid in Florida in Orlando rather than having him travel to, let's say, Auburn, Alabama or College Station, Texas? Now in five years, maybe not even that long, maybe in three to four years, the entire structure of the sport has changed because you've given incentive for coaches and players to not always have to go to a place like Auburn, Texas A&M, uh, Michigan, Penn State, uh, Michigan State. They're, they don't want to go to Washington State now or Washington because now they have a better shot to go to the playoffs playing at UCF or Cincinnati or Boise State. So you can change the entire structure of the sport and the perception of it and the talent balance that seems so diluted right now. You can balance the talent of coaching and athletes out if you give them incentive to do so. And I know they don't want to pay anybody. They don't want to give athletes money. Fine. Why don't you make it a little bit more equitable so that people feel like they have some incentive, they have some skin in the game. And when you do that, that will drastically change the structure of, of the sport, I think, as it stands right now. Adam Amin, ESPN broadcaster, usually joins us a couple times every football season. We appreciate having him on. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland, talking jazz and Cougars NCAA tournament hopes. Stay with us. 
Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280, The Zone, and it's time to talk basketball with Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Lease any phone and get an iPad or Samsung Tab A for $99.99. Visit the Sprint store nearest you. Steve, good morning. Good morning. So, Jazz fans are of a couple minds, Steve. There's one that says, nine in a row, 13 out of 14. Clarkson is exactly what the bench needed. These guys could do anything now. And there's another group that's like, the opponents haven't been that good. They're just setting us up to break our heart in the spring. Which group's more likely right? (laughs) Uh, I think you got to look at this from a very optimistic point of view. First of all, you know, your your leading scorer steps away, and uh, I know they're not playing a great team in the Wizards, but they're on the road, and uh, they're down 15, and these guys find a way to win. I, I think that's uh, an indication that this team is really together, playing with a great deal of confidence. And uh, so, I, I mean, if, if you're a Jazz fan, uh, you you got to be feeling really good about what's happening. Hey, the reality is, yeah, there, there, there are tough days ahead and tough games ahead. But the more confidence you acquire, the more connected you are together, uh, those things lend themselves to being more prepared for those big games to, you know, to get get into the not only get into the playoffs but to to win a series or two and find yourself in the, the Western Finals. I mean that's what you have to be dreaming about and believing in. And uh, the more the more they win, and the more they're together, and the more they kind of overcome adversity in games like they had uh, the other night, uh, that that hoop starts looking like it's about five foot wide. See, I view <clears throat> I view road games in the NBA. Exactly the way I viewed road games, conference road games in college basketball. They're hard to come by, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, who's playing, who's not, what team you're playing. You look at last week, Utah State against Air Force. Now, you've been over to Clune Arena, as have I, many, many times over. It's a funky place to play, and sure enough, uh, Air Force goes on a late run in the second, first half, and then they carried over in the second half, and the Aggies had all these expectations, and they lose that ball game. It was their third loss in a row, blah, blah, blah. So to me, NBA road games, you get them, you get as many as you possibly can, and you're grateful for each and every one of them. It's the same thing, same principle for conference road games in college basketball. They, they they are very similar and they are very difficult. People have no idea because teams, even with teams with very poor records, everybody's capable. Even even mediocre college teams on a given night can can do special things and they're playing at home with their fan base and they get the energy and all of a sudden they start making baskets. I mean, I remember some of my experiences at Air Force. I I had some of the worst experiences of my life and I had a couple of wins there that had played a huge role in winning a couple of conference championships. So. It is a very difficult place to play. And when we were playing Air Force, they were going to the NCAA tournament. I mean, yeah. there was uh, it was just a really, really solid program, and it, but it was always hard to play there. And 
I think in the NBA, I think what people don't realize, they, they see a team, what, it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's the Wizards or Oklahoma City or wh- whatever it might be, they've all got professional players on their teams. They, they all got drafted. They were great collegiate players. And I think because we look at a record and see them not doing well, that they're not capable of winning at home, and it's just going to be an easy thing for us. But the fact is, every team in the NBA, even the very worst of them, on a given night can beat anybody. We've seen that actually happen several times. And we were always scratching our heads, and how did that happen? Well, it happened, number one, because your mindset wasn't right. You didn't execute. You didn't do this or do that. And that team was fired up to play it. And you put, that's the formula for disaster on the road, is that if you don't come with that mindset and that toughness and, and be connected, uh, it's hard to win. But those are the most satisfying experiences that I had as a coach in high school, junior college, and at the Division One level was winning on the road. That brings teams more together than anything else. So this whole question of how good are the Jazz going to be when they play the best teams in the postseason, I was thinking of all the encouraging things that happened in the win over the Wizards. Maybe Bogdanovich knowing Mitchell's out, I'm the guy most likely to go for 30, we need offense, I better come out really aggressive and get going and get to 30. And he did, and I'm wondering if that can play, pay off in the postseason, that no one, I have to do it right now, this is the moment. I mean, it's the Wizards on the road, so it's not the same as playing the Lakers and Clippers in the, in the playoffs, but do you draw any line between the two? Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely do, because I think the more success that you have breeds more success, and we, uh, we underestimate the power of the mind and and the confidence factor that comes from repetition, repetition. And, you know, you can get one thing to be in a gym by yourself shooting threes. It's another thing to be doing it when it's contested and there's pressure and there's those circumstances. And once you start doing that, there there is no doubt. You're not, there's, you're, you're, that trigger is just, it's released smoothly. It's it's the same every time. And because when guys get nervous or when anxiety sits in or, the doubt sits in, or they've had had games where they haven't made baskets. All of that plays a factor. It doesn't mean they don't have a great jump shot, but the, the mental part of this game is, is huge. And the more experiences you have with success, the more your mind expects that and realizes that, and you, you just get in a, in a different place. You're in a moment of time that you feel really comfortable. It's people talk about you know being in the moment. That that's not just a little catchy you know catchphrase that everybody likes to use on TV or radio. I mean, being in the moment means that I've done this before, not only a million times in practice, but I did this in games, and I can do this again here. And that kind of confidence, with an understanding of the system you're playing within, understanding that the guys that are connected and that is it in it is in the confines of what we're doing offensively, then that that's a formula for for success. And so you cannot underestimate winning, what it does for, for players. Now, the, the fact is it is true. They're not playing the Lakers and the Clippers right now, but they will. And they'll be more prepared to play those teams and be more confident when that day and time comes. And we, listen, we've seen really good teams go on the road and get beat by inferior teams. It happens all the time. And, you, and what does everybody say? Well, they just, we just weren't ready mentally. We weren't right where we needed to be. And nothing to away. We didn't have enough talent, or we didn't have good enough players. It, this mental preparation for the road and at home, and how you uh, keep all of the you know all the distractions away, 
and and that's hard because they have families, they have friends, they have a lot of you know these are these are real people with real things going on in their lives, and there's tragedy and challenges. But when you can kind of just get there in that moment when you're playing and put all that other stuff aside, uh, then when you get into the big moments, you're not. You're just more confident. You're not. You're not afraid of those big moments. You want those. You 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 embrace those big moments, and that's how you win big time series and playoffs. And and Utah Jazz are on the cusp of that. They're they're going to go through this. I mean, you start looking at their schedule, and uh, you know they they can go on the road and get beat by the Nets. You know, Irving's back. Uh, they could got. They could get. You know, Dinwiddie. You never know when he's going to go off. The Pelicans are a streaky team. The Kings are capable. Now, you know, the nice thing is that. They go in there, and I don't know. If, I don't know what Donald Mitchell's status is. If he's not going to be playing these next couple of games on the road, that makes it certainly more difficult. But uh, they're still in a situation when you look at it. Five games. I mean, the Nets, the Pelicans, the Kings, the Pacers, the Warriors. Those are all winnable games, even if they're not at the top of their game. So uh, that puts them in a real interesting position. And we talked about this last week, where you know they they could have 30 wins here in another week or two uh, going through the schedule. So best thing they've done, they've taken care of business, which is what they were supposed to do. And then and then certainly the the schedule will ratchet up a little bit here as, as we move on in the coming weeks. One of the real treats for me as we watch every get jazz game and obsess over it and watch all the college games, obviously, it's part of our job. And one of the treats for me is watching guys come down the lane and looking up and seeing Rudy Gobert there and thinking, nope, I'm backing out, I'm <laughs> passing, I'm dribbling through and whatnot. I mean, really, is it's become fun and entertaining for me. And to see fools try to challenge him, you're not going to succeed uh, maybe once or twice, particularly if you're not his same or close to his size. you got, like, no chance. So I'm wondering, to, in my mind now, it's the halfway point of the season, I think – Gobert should be a legitimate MVP candidate. I just don't know that he's going to get any run for it, but I got to believe the coaches, the ones who really follow the game, understand, and media folks who really, really follow it, understand what his impact is, and he should be an MVP candidate. Well, here's the thing, and I can't speak for people who are voting and who do those things, but it seems from just watching this over the years that they're they're looking for either prolific scorers and guys that, you know, have, can do both. So, you know, you, you, you look at, you know, you take James Harden. Here's a guy that has won MVPs uh, predominantly for his ability to score and create. It, it wasn't about offense and defense. You know, Russell Westbrook, who was in the MVP category, and was an MVP, you know, he was doing three things. He was scoring. He was, you know, he was assisting. He was he was dishing out all sorts of assists. He was rebounding the basketball, triple doubles. Uh, you know, you, if you look at LeBron and you look at Steph Curry, those are all pretty complete players. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, I can't speak for people I don't know, but it seems like if you're just more in, and, and Rudy for a long time has just been considered maybe kind of more of a one-dimensional guy. He's a rebounder. He, he's a rim protector. Can he score? Can he do other things? But but you're right when you look at it in the context of. What is he doing for his team? And, and it's an important thing. I mean, it, it's hard to be – I mean, you know, they're, they're talking about Dockage as, as, as an MVP candidate, you know, and, and we don't know how the, how the Dallas Mavericks are going to all play out. But, it, but at the end of the day, 
the, what you're doing to help your team and where your team is at. And if you're there in second place and the, you finish second in, in the Western Conference and he's going for 15 or 16 and 18 or 19 rebounds a game, yeah, he is in the MVP. But I think where this team ends up and, and the success that this team will have, I think for voters, for guys that are looking at this game from the outside, they're going to go, what's making this team click? What's, what's so valuable about a team that's now second in second place in the West, the tough Western division? It's, it's Rudy Gobert. Well, we can talk about Jordan Clarkson and Donovan Mitchell, but when you can protect the rim like he does and, and, and have that kind of presence without him, they, they're not the same team. And no matter how many baskets they make. So uh, it's in the context that you have to look at it in terms of for Rudy to be in that conversation, this team is going to have to be really elite because they're not going to, they're going to look at the whole pack and say, well, he's only averaging, you know, 14 or 15 points a game. He's not a great shooter. You know, he doesn't shoot the three. Whatever their excuses would be for not voting for him. But if this team continues to do what they do and he continues to have that presence, then I, then I think he, he's part of that narrative. He's part of that conversation as an MVP candidate. Obviously, he's, he's really, really valuable to the Utah Jazz and what they're doing. No Yoli Childs, and BYU loses to St. Mary's in overtime. If they have no Yoli at Gonzaga, what are you thinking about the Cougars' NCAA tournament hopes? Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that BYU is, you know, I mean, hey, they're, they're going to believe they can go anywhere and win, and, and this team is together, and they're, they're tough guys, and, and they compete. Uh, I would think it would be really difficult to go to Gonzaga and win at Gonzaga without Yoli. Uh, just the sheer numbers. Uh, and, and I think Gonzaga obviously is really good. I've watched them just a little bit. So uh, at, at times, and, and, and when Tilly's scoring, they, they seem to be better. But I, I think it'll be a really t- challenging game for BYU there without Yoli because he, he's a big part of it. And mind you, they played without him 10 times and had a lot of success, but they, they, haven't, played a, they haven't played anybody like Gonzaga. And, uh, but you had to. You had to watch that game against St. Mary's and know that they, you know, that that team really stayed in that game. And, and you know how St. Mary's is; it's just such a grind playing them. And then they, you know, St. Mary's never kind of overcomes uh, that loss and ends up losing to a Santa Clara team, which is a good team but not a great team. And so, there, you got to be ready on the road. And uh, I, I think. BYU will take care of people at home. I think they just play well, and I think teams in this league that come into BYU just don't seem to be themselves. I think the, I think the the depth perception of the arena and a lot of those kinds of things really lends itself. It was that way when I was there. People, most people don't come into that building and play well, and it's it's a tough place to win. But uh, certainly BYU left themselves in a position. I mean, all the all the numbers point to them being in the tournament. I don't think a loss at Gonzaga is going to diminish where they are in terms of being an NC2A tournament. Uh, the, what would hurt their NC2A chances is not losing to Gonzaga. It would be going to UOP or going to Pepperdine, scary places for teams to go that have athletes and have the ability to score uh, with the ball. So that, that's what will stop BYU. That, that, that's what will be, will be the roadblock for them is going places where they're expected to win and should win because – their uh, their resume right now is really really strong to be in the tournament, and uh, they they got control of that. They they win the games they're supposed to win, finishing the top two in the WCC. They're going to the NC two A tournament. Steve, as always, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks, guys. Have a good week. There's Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. A Donovan Mitchell health update. Next, stay with us.